This is the seventh Sunday of Easter, or the Sunday after Ascension Day. You can talk about it any way you want to. Before I start to preach my sermon, though, I want to make you aware of an article that I received uh, from a parishioner uh, a week or two ago from the Washington Post. Want millennials back in the pews? Stop trying to make church cool. It's written by a woman named Rachel Held Evans, and I think she's about 30. So that would mean that she came to adulthood around 2000, somewhere in there. And I'm just, you indulge me, I want to read a couple of things. You're just as likely to hear words market share and branding in church staff meetings these days as you are in corporate offices. Too true. Recent research from the Barna Group and the Cornerstone Knowledge Network found that 67% of millennials prefer a classic church over a trendy one and 77% would choose a sanctuary over an auditorium. Yet while we have yet to warm to the word traditional, only 40% favorite over modern, millennials exhibit an increasing aversion to exclusive, closed-minded religious communities masquerading as the hip new places in town. When I left church at age 29, Full of doubt and disillusionment, I wasn't looking for a better-produced Christianity. I was looking for a truer Christianity, a more authentic Christianity. I didn't like how gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people were being treated by my evangelical faith community. I had questions about science and faith, biblical interpretation and theology. I felt lonely in my doubts. And contrary to popular belief, the fog machines and light shows at those slick evangelical conferences didn't make things better for me. They made the whole endeavor feel shallow, forced, and fake. The sacraments are what make the church relevant no matter the cultural or era. They don't need to be repackaged or rebranded. They just need to be practiced, offered, and explained in the context of a loving, authentic, and inclusive community. My morals and ethics professor used to say in seminary, he who has ears will hear, or she who has ears will hear. So here are the questions for this Sunday, and the focus is going to be on the reading, or a little bit on the reading from 1 John and from the gospel, because what you heard read to you is probably somewhat hard to follow, but it comes from chapter 17, which is known in, in biblical circles as the great high priestly prayer. But before that, I want to say a word to you about Ascension. Uh, Ascension was last Thursday, and almost every Ascension Day, I tell the story. I haven't done it at the other liturgies, but this one. When I was about ready to go to seminary a long time ago now, uh, I taught Sunday school. 
at St. Matthew's Church in San Mateo, and I was in charge of the children's chapel service that happened in the parish, the Julia Baylard Hall. And so in the, the, the chapel, we had a used Paschal candle. Uh, and in the old liturgy, you put the Paschal candle out on Ascension Day before Pentecost. Now we wait to Pentecost, Paschal candle goes out the end of the great 50 days. But we, you put it out, and if you were really high church, you, you were poised there, and when the, the, the reading was Jesus ascended into heaven, you put it out. So I said to the kids in the chapel service, I said, uh, what's not here that has been here for a fairly long time? The Paschal candle. I said, that's right. And I said, why isn't the Paschal candle here? So I picked on somebody and they said, because we don't have to think about Jesus anymore. Here's what Father Thomas Keating says about the ascension. I think there's a lot of people like that, you know, who, by the way, who we don't have to think about Jesus anymore. And what Rachel is talking about in her article is uh, something that may be the cause of that. She, by the way, ended up in the Episcopal Church. Wonder of wonders. Father Keating says about the ascension that Jesus ascended not into some geographical location, but into the heart of all creation. In particular, he has penetrated the very depth of our being. Our separate self-sense has melted into his divine person. And now we can act under the direct influence of his spirit. Well, how does that happen? It happens in the sacramental life through baptism. Are there any people for whom the Spirit of God is at work who haven't been baptized? Yes. But I'm speaking to you now as a Christian person. And baptism is the central act by which we understand how we're grafted onto the body of Christ. And by virtue of that, we see that there are the processes of God introduced in such a way as to enable us to have greater clarity about God's purposes for us. So next week, we're going to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost when we receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now dwells, transfers from the person of Jesus in his earthly ministry to the people of God that we call the church. So you and I are the fiduciaries and the beneficiaries of the Holy Spirit of God. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. Father Keating goes on to say that this process becomes a mysterious interpenetration of material experience, spiritual reality, and the divine presence. This opens us to the transcendent potential in ourselves, to our mind, 
which opens up to unlimited truth, and to our will, which reaches out for unlimited love. And of course, this is the folk, one of the foci of the Johannine literature. All of the, the literature in the New Testament that is attributed to John. So we had 1 John, who talks about love. And today we have in the gospel, uh, Jesus speaking about this in his high priestly prayer. So just to backtrack for a minute and say something to you about the Johannine literature, I hope you keep that word on ice because you could amaze your friends or who people might roll their eyes, one or the other. This is all the literature attributed to John. And most biblical, certainly the ones that taught me in seminary would tell you that this is some of the latest literature in the New Testament. So we would... Uh, Date in those days, John's gospel at 90, 95, maybe even 100. So in, even in that scheme, I would go for the earliest 90. But as I was preparing my sermon, I uh, took a book off my shelf, you know, that I read in. And it, it is by Bishop J.A.T. Robinson, who wrote a book in 1962 called Honest to God which threw him into a controversy in the Anglican Church. But this book is called Redating the New Testament. And in this book, he describes his view of how we would date the biblical books. And he describes in this book, um, a, or makes a very compelling case for an earlier date for John's Gospel. And the same is true for the, for the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So he brings John back into about 70. Or, oh, who cares? What difference does it make? Well, in one sense, it may make a difference because um, there, is, there are some things in John's gospel that clearly go back to eyewitness testimony. There's a way to figure this out now. Historically, before nobody talked about it a lot, and I have to be honest with you, it's mainly uh, conservative evangelicals who, are extra, who talk about this now. But the fact is that um, they're, they're, much of what we see in the Gospels can be traced to eyewitness testimony. And the way that's done is through what we've learned about the history of the ancient Near East. You know... All these studies about the social world have to do, just like doing it today, how did people think? How did they shop? Was there money? How did they use their money? When they spoke to one another, how did they describe what they'd seen? And how would they understand what that all meant? And we know a lot more about that now than we knew when I went to seminary in the early 1970s, mid-1970s. So there's stuff in John's... Let me give you an example. The feeding of the 5,000, which is in all of the Gospels. Uh, Jesus uh, is feeding the 5,000, and the, 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 the description is, and they all sat down, and there was much grass in the place. That doesn't appear in the, in the synoptics, right? 
So things that are described often mean that whoever is describing that had a, an experience of this in terms of eyewitness testimony. So it's also fair to say that what we read in John's Gospel is very spiritual as opposed to uh, trying to give you literal history. And today in the Gospel, uh, Jesus is speaking about relationship. Some people refer to the community out of which this literature emerged as the community of the beloved disciple. And that's important because there's a whole lot in here about how, how intensely God loves us and how intense, intensely Jesus loves us. And so in this somewhat difficult to understand passage from chapter 17, Jesus is describing the complete alignment that he has with God the Father. And the people who wrote this literature and wrote John's Gospel said, in this man's words and in this man's works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. So, if God were a human being, this is what he would be like for us. And Jesus now is speaking about some things that we need to understand. One of them is, how do we understand what it means in the Bible when we hear the word world? Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe the world differently and mean some different things by it, Paul. But John means by world all of those things internally, spiritually, mentally, externally that are aligned with the principles and views that are opposed to what they believe as the Johannine community. So, John uses in the Greek text, cosmos. You've heard that word, talk about it. Cosmos, that's where we get the word cosmetic, by the way, you know. And another meaning in the affirmative side is ornament. So cosmetic and or ornament may have something to do with one another. But the other meaning that John means when he uses this word because of the context is chaos. Well, what would that have to do with the way in which Christian people thought and think about the ordering of the world and the great narrative of the history of salvation that we get from the Hebrew Bible through the New Testament, the Christian scriptures. Well, in the creation stories in Genesis, we have God ordering the chaos. Instead of things being just random, both in the spiritual and material world, God organizes them into some form and shape. And John understands that God is the medium by which we understand how this ordering takes place. So the big question is, what do we do with the chaos that's still around? I was talking to somebody the other day. I was sitting in the park up here uh, near the Boulanger Bakery. 
And I was talking, and we were, as we were sitting there, there was a flagpole, and the wind was blowing, and the flag kept going like this. And the guy that I was speaking with uh, was a mathematician and also a computer scientist. He taught in college. And he said, you see that flag moving? And I said, yes. And he said, uh, it never moves the same way twice. It always moves differently. And so there was wind, obviously, a breeze. And he said, you see these trees, the, tw the, the leaves and the twigs, move. they never move the same way twice. And you can write an equation to prove it in mathematics that it never moves the same way twice. It's, we call it chaos. So I'm thinking, well, how would I um, understand this in terms of my own life? And if you think about it, you'd say to yourself, well, every day when I get up, there's a certain amount of chaos that I have to deal with, right? Mostly in the everyday. Not in the great and grand issues about why is there war and destruction and the lack of peace, railroad derailments. But what about the chaos that's in my life? What about the confusion? What about the lack of clarity? How do we understand how that gets ordered? Or more to the point, how can I live in the midst of this and have some clarity about God's purpose for me? It should be a prayer every day for all of us to say, here I am, Lord, use me. Or please help me deal with the chaos. And we need to have faith that, that God hears us. You know, we're Episcopalians. We say things like, uh, don't feel guilty about your doubts. Don't feel guilty about your skepticism. That's all good. That's good. But the opposite of doubt is not faith. It's certainty. It's certainty. So all of us are anxious, worried, and nervous about the chaos. And embedded in this high priestly prayer is something about how God is organizing the world and that people who believe that they are unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven will have some idea about how to proceed. So next week, we're going to talk about the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is one of the agencies that brings this to us. I mean, all of us in big and small ways have had some experience where we thought, I don't know how I ever got through that, or how I ever understood it, or what in the world is going on, but somehow it worked, or certain things conspired together to produce a, a positive result. I saw a bumper sticker once that said, uh, a, a coincidence is when God acts and chooses to remain anonymous. Right? 
Now, I'm not talking about people who believe that one coincidence after another has something to do with God intervening. But the fact of the matter is, is that often that's the way we can put two and two together about those things. Because that means that the providence of God, God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiven is present to you, to each one of us individually. So when we know that together as a community, there's much we can do. Much that's very important. I used to subscribe to a magazine that's published in England by the Jesuits. Oh, no. It's called The Tablet. And years ago, they were talking about the high priestly prayer and about the, coming, the ascension and the coming, uh, uh, the taming of the chaos and said, when we approach these things from faith, we live in a Christ-centered vision of human wholeness that is human growth and development towards a model of perfection that is not humanity's own invention. Most of us think it is. And that's another thing about what we mean or John means when he speaks about the world. Amen.